Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I'm your host, John Ebersol. Today, I am excited to be joined by one of our most important poetry critics and poets, James Longenbach, who has recently published a book of essays titled The Virtues of Poetry, Grey Wolf Press, 2013. James Longenbach's The Virtues of Poetry is not interested in the vices or failures found in poems. So his concerns aren't necessarily moral ones, but instead, as the title of the book suggests, he is interested in understanding what makes a particular poem, and poet for that matter, flourish, and therefore shows how a reader might flourish. And it's this relationship, the one between the reader and poem, that James Longenbach's book honors through his ingenuity of reading poetry through the framework of virtues, such as boldness, compression, excess, restraint, and shyness, just to name a few he identifies. And he unearths these virtues by focusing on on a poem's rhythm and diction and syntax, and the poet's lives themselves, apprehended through their letters as well. The Virtues of Poetry is a joyous book of criticism, written by a poet and critic who doesn't seek to reprimand poems, which is usually the result of someone mired in taste, but to identify why certain poems can be considered an achievement, and also to celebrate the paradoxical nature of poetry itself, that poems embody the impulse to clarify the world, while also wrestling with the world's unsettling mysteries. James Wagenbach, welcome to New Books and Poetry. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here, and thank you for that uh, accurate and eloquent description of the book. Uh, I, I thought that was uh, terrific. Well, it, ple- it definitely pleases me to uh, hear that. And before we get into your um, into the virtues of poetry, I definitely want to back up and uh, you know get a sense of who you are as a person, and if you could tell us about. Uh, where you grew up, uh, what life was like for you, and when, in fact, uh, poetry discovered you. Mm. Well, I, I grew up in a, you know, pretty ordinary family in uh, a town in New Jersey, not far from New York City. My parents had themselves grown up in Pennsylvania, and <laughs> really they'd moved, you know, really only about 40 miles in New Jersey, but. It wasn't until I was an adult that I realized that they might as well have moved to Paris, uh, the difference between this kind of semi-rural Pennsylvania that was only 40 miles away and where we lived, which is about 15 miles from New York. It was just a very different world. Um, my father was a high school art teacher and a, and a professional artist of, of a wide variety of kinds, and so I grew up a very conversant with that world, and I also, even more importantly for myself, uh, devoted a great deal of time to music. I was a very devoted pianist, Mm. 
And it really wasn't until college that poetry found me. And I think it found me for this reason, because the means of artistic expression that I knew best, which were music and painting, uh, demanded viscerally that you be seen and heard, yeah. uh, especially the music, because you can't even practice the piano without making a lot of noise. Uh, and so I think, and again, I only realized this in retrospect, what began to grip me about poetry was that it's something uh, that you could, it was an activity of artistic expression and reception that could take place completely privately and that nobody needed to know about it. Uh, and that was very seductive to me, and that's what drew me to poetry uh, away from the musical world that had been my major artistic preoccupation. Yeah, that's really fascinating that you brought up uh, definitely the musical side. It makes me think about, in your book, your uh your attention to soundscapes created by the poem mm. um when where did you uh originally do your undergraduate work what was your kind of uh relationship with uh with the academy like and and what are you doing now well i was an undergraduate at trinity college in connecticut and i had uh, a couple of uh really influential teachers there uh who I can see again in retrospect were not only great teachers but really took the time to not only understand me but to intuit the person that I wasn't yet or the person that I could be or or something and uh, I'm deeply grateful for their attentions which were never deeply personal or deeply invasive but but very canny informative to me um I'm now I am, you know, I've been teaching for many years now at the University of Rochester, and uh, and I've had those kinds of uh, feelings and relationships with students of my own, and tried to, of course, you know, pass along what was given to me. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, when we turn to the virtues of poetry, can you give us a sense how this book kind of came to be that the collection of essays, it's interesting because you had this kind of anchoring principle of the virtues and mm -hmm. was that kind of, uh, just kind of organically by accident that you found yourself identifying certain features of poems and then kind of kind of in a philosophical way connecting them to the idea of virtues? I mean, was it, were you, was this like a clear picture for you or did you like kind of look at these disparate essays and go, oh, I kind of see a common thread there suddenly? It became clear, but it, it became clear over time. Uh, so the book had a very kind of organic and unpremeditated genesis. Mm -hmm. um, I've been working on it for about 10 years, but I only knew exactly what I was working on maybe for the last three years. Right. Uh, I let the pieces accumulate. And it wasn't, you know, it, you're, you're right to call it a collection of essays. That's what it looks like, but it, it's not actually what it feels like to me because I know very few of these chapters were published in the state that you see them here. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, uh, the chapter uh, called, and I'm having to look at the table of contents. Of course, take your time. Uh, the, the chapter called A Fine Excess yeah. was, was really collaged from four different essays. And that is the most extreme example of this, but most of the chapters 
it wasn't a matter of just taking essays that I had written discreetly before and slapping them side by side. It was a matter of weaving together disparate materials from many different places and organizing the entire arc of the book from the first page to the last page. Right. So, uh, it gives us some insight into that kind of writing process that I think mm-hmm. uh, really will fascinate our our readers in a way mm-hmm. that uh, you don't sit out like I'm writing a book and you know I'm moving no. forward in that linear way. In fact, yeah, it comes together uh, almost mysteriously. And how does this one, the way this came together, is, it, is that a similar method you've used in your critical prose in the past or is this somehow different? Uh, it, it's similar to some and different from some. You know, what it's most similar to is the way that you, you build a book of poems over time. Sure. Um, you know, you, you write one poem and then you write another poem, you've got two, and then the question becomes, which one do I read first? <laughs> You're already <laughs> you know, sort of building a provisional whole, and then, and then over time you intuit what the whole might be, but it doesn't exist yet. Uh, and, and for me, building a good work of prose happens by the same process, uh, so that it doesn't feel machinated or the pieces don't feel, you know, driven through a thesis so that the book's chapters feel like you're jumping up and down on a pogo stick and making the same point again. I want there to feel as you feel within a great single poem or within a great sequence or book of poems that that something is happening and changing even though you're in the same arena as you move forward from piece to piece to piece and you keep needing to revise where you've been in order to take the next step forward. Um, I, the last uh, book of critical prose I did called The Resistance to Poetry was mm-hmm. written in fashion, but the books I did prior to that were, were written in a more uh, uh, typical, I suppose, uh, way in that the idea for them more or less preceded their existence. I think that, yeah, that is so uh, very interesting to me that the way you speak of the virtues of poetry and the resistance to poetry, that it, it did come about in a similar fashion or that you relate even to the writing of prose um, kind of similar to the writing of poetry. Um, do you yeah. find any, any, uh, distinct difference in the two? I mean, I guess I should say this, that do you feel like the same kind of creative person when you're writing prose and poetry, or are you kind of approaching intuitively things differently, or I don't know. Can you talk about that? Sure, I can. I think when things are going very well when I'm writing, I do not feel like a different person when I'm writing prose and when I'm writing poetry. Uh, It's the making of sentences that are absolutely clear but very provocative mm-hmm. uh, is the rigor that overrides the distinction in genre, I would say. Uh, so that, again, when things are going really well, <laughs> I get the same satisfaction. Exactly. But, but they don't always go really well. Sure. <laughs> like, of the time they don't go really well and you know in a perfect world I'd always rather be writing a poem uh, that is ultimately more satisfying and comes from you know the center of my being in some more uh, complete way 
But that said, you know, you can't write poems all the time. You've got to read a hundred of them, right. you know, in order to write one that's half decent. And I think that, you know, all poets of any stature are great critics. Not all of them happen to write down the critical acts that they must engage in in order to write poems. Sure. Um, but when I'm not writing poems, I find uh, the writing of prose to be a good way to spend my time. Yeah, it sounds like kind of a a creative uh, equilibrium to uh, mm -hmm. that's really kind of refreshing to hear. Um, just to back up for a second, sure. has music... Uh, receded from your creative life pretty much? Is it something you do leisurely now? Well, uh, it's certainly not something I do professionally, but I do play a lot. Uh, though, for the last three years, I've embarked on a new musical endeavor. I, uh, I early on in my musical life, um, became very interested in what gets called early music, mm -hmm. you know, Renaissance and Baroque music, and I began... Uh, even when I was in high school, uh, playing the harpsichord, I built a harpsichord uh, and had maintained that interest for a long time. But through that, the instrument that really captivated me and fascinated me, since it really is the primary instrument of the Renaissance, the way the piano is the primary instrument of the 19th century, is the lute. Hmm. And after dreaming about it for many years, three years ago, I began to study the lute. So I've been... I have been taking lute lessons and practicing the lute for the last three years. <laughs> That's fantastic. How, um, what has that experience been like? Uh, did you walk into it uh, kind of like, I don't know what I'm doing here? Or like, did you, uh, just what's that? What's that experience been like? Well, um, I never even played the guitar, mm -hmm. so I had no experience uh, with a plucked stringed instrument of that nature, but. As someone said to me, uh, this is actually a student of mine that I had in the Warren Wilson MFA program who was studying uh, poetry there, but he was his day job, as it were, was as a professional classical guitarist, and like many such people, he dabbled in the lute, and it was mm -hmm. through him that I acquired a lute, and I, and, uh, I said to him when he, he, I was first speaking about doing this, I said, but I, I've never even played the guitar, and he said, well, so what? For hundreds of years, people played the lute and had never played the guitar because guitars didn't exist yet. So it's not as if this is a major stumbling block. <laughs> so, uh, so I began to play, and uh, you know, it was it was really back to the drawing board because right. to play the lute, uh, you have to learn a whole new way of reading music. It's not notes on a staff. You have to read tablature, which works in a completely different way. Oh my gosh! Uh, and I'd never you know, played an instrument like this at all. Uh, unfortunately, I found a fantastic teacher uh, where I live, Rochester, New York, is the is one of the early music centers of the world because of the presence of the Eastman School of Music here. Mm -hmm. So really, there were, you know, a half dozen lute teachers I could choose from. <laughs> the one I chose happened to live around the corner. Uh, so she's been great and incredibly patient. And to finally really get to the point of your question, uh, how this felt was simultaneously deeply gratifying, but also at times deeply frustrating. It was great, a great pleasure to be a beginner again at something. That's exactly uh, what I was kind of thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to cut you off, but I was going to, no. I kind of wanted to think because whenever we're trying to acquire a new skill or, and we try to turn that skill into a habit that one has to uh, live in that f very frustrating uh, period. And it's very, uh, 
really gives one a sense of humility. And I wanted to ask you, yeah, exactly. It must be interesting to be, you know, that you've honed your craft as a poet and a prose writer, and here you are as a beginner. Yeah, though, you know, it's not an unfamiliar feeling, though, because if you're really going to, let's just stick to poems as an example, mm-hmm. if you're really going to write poems well, you have to be, and I think you do, you constantly feel like a beginner. Yeah. Because you finish a poem, and, you know, for about 15 seconds you feel great, and <laughs> then then you're not writing a poem. Yeah. And that doesn't feel good at all. And you have to figure out how to start the next poem, and how's that going to happen? You have no idea because it hasn't happened yet. You've rolled down to the bottom of the mountain, and oddly, you can't tell whether you have any of the necessary skills to start the next poem. You're always beginning again, and because every poem you write that's better than the one before sets the bar higher, you're always needing to acquire skills and insights that you don't have yet. So your ability to imagine what you can do is always leaping far beyond what you can do or what you have done. Uh, So there's this constant tug between whatever expertise you have mustered over time and the sense that that expertise is irrelevant and you're starting over again. Yeah, I think that's a really incredible way to put it. I think that it's a simultaneous, uh, you know that you have no choice but to keep going forward with this activity and yet even after you accomplish something you are right back to square one with uh your friend vulnerability <laughs> very well put <laughs> um you know moving along as i look at uh the virtues of poetry how did it come about that uh uh gray wolf press got a hold of it well um I had a relationship with Grey Wolf because uh, between the two books of prose that I've mentioned, The Resistance to Poetry and this book, The Virtues of Poetry, uh, they commissioned me to do a little book uh, called The Art of the Poetic Line. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had gotten in touch with me. They have this wonderful series edited by Charlie Baxter called The Art of, and then there are, you know, so far maybe, you know, Ten or a dozen books in this series. There's the art of syntax, the art of intimacy, and so on. Various aspects of writing, and they're all you know short books, sort of craft based. And they they asked me if I'd want to do one, and I said yes. And I proposed writing about line, and uh, and they said great. And you know I signed a contract, and then you know I thought. I can't possibly do this. I have maybe five pages to say about this. I can't do it. And I even wrote them a letter and said I, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do it. And then I didn't send it. And then I got an idea for the book. And then I wrote the whole thing in like three weeks. It was no amazing. And then so the point of this is that um, I had a wonderful experience with Grey Wolf with this book. Uh, I really enjoyed working with them. So uh, then I um, approached them with uh, The Virtues of Poetry, which was finished. Uh, when I approached them with it, and they were instantly very happy to publish it, and that's, you know, where I went. Yeah, it's a physical, I mean, it's a beautiful physical object of the book. It really is. Uh, oh, yeah, the cover's amazing. I isn't love it? it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just the whole feel of the book, everything about it is great. So I want to go ahead and crack into the pages mm-hmm. of the virtues of poetry, and uh, I want to kind of look at the very first page on the preface, Mm-hmm. And kind of read something you wrote, and just kind of get your sure. kind of get your take on it. And it's in the second paragraph. And I I found you know you're never heavy handed about 
trying to call out the contemporary scene or you know what I mean? Like it was really you always had a very light touch uh when it came to I don't know, uh just you didn't get you didn't fall into kind of traps uh where you would come off as dogmatic or something. But mm-hmm. there were little pinprick moments that caught my eye and I was just yes. wondering if you could address yes. those. Um uh, sure. so you write but over the past fifty years accomplishment in our poetry has been singled most often by manner as if it were the job of artists not to engage the most potent aspects of Dickinson or Eliot, but to sequester themselves in one or another schoolroom buoyed by the camaraderie with other students sitting obediently if stylishly, which I liked in rows. And you go on to kind of talk about like this binary kind of relationship that potentially exists in contemporary poetry. And I was wondering, when you look out there, you know, like, if you could just kind of uh, talk about what you're seeing uh, and how something about you writing this book, your book does seem to rub against in a in a friendly way, but it still rubs against the kind of certain contemporary uh, manners. And you bring up manner and taste. And I was wondering if you could kind of explore that for us real quick of uh, mm-hmm. what do you see in the contemporary moment? How does your book kind of situate it uh, in relationship to it? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think perhaps the most important thing about the passage that you just read is that is the sentence that then starts the next paragraph, which is a sentence which acknowledges that the previous 50 years of poetry has always seemed mannered. That mm-hmm. when I say that the last 50 years of poetry seems mannered, I'm not saying a unique or controversial thing. Right. Um, that it is always the case that most of what happens in recent history is driven by uh, taste and style in the most garden variety sense of those words. And I, I think this is, you know, what we tend to lose sight of. And I suppose if I, if I have an argument with the contemporary moment, it's not because I think there's something wrong with it. I don't. Right. There's, you know, a great deal of, of, you know, of great work being written. And I think that, you know, we have poets of, uh, older poets of real stature among us. The problem is to concentrate on the present moment as if it, really deeply matters in and of itself right? Uh, because it has never been the case that at least 99% of what is written in a 50 year period is never heard of again most of what we see will fall away and all of the debates for what you know who's in and who's out and what school is dominant and so on even 25 years from now, nobody's going to remember that. Right. Uh, that's all of the passing moment. You know, if you start going down this road, it can start to seem really apocalyptic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but if you if you think of the 19th century, you know, even if you're well read in poetry, right. you've read, you know, maybe 10 or 12 poets from the 19th century. <laughs> Precisely. And 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 that was 113 years ago. So how many poets are we going to read from the second half of the 20th century? I know it's really incredible okay. to think about too. And maybe five. <laughs> I know it's amazing because if you think about it, like it puts a particular type of pressure on on poets. I think because you could look at that idea two ways. You could you could see like, oh, I'm going to be forgotten in 50 years. 
that could free a poet up to really truly be kind of an authentic self and exactly and not really exactly. care about the fashions going around or a, or a different poet might feel tremendous pressure to mm -hmm. get it right now you know um it's really interesting well i think your first choice is the the wise one and the really deeply humane one and i think that's what great writers have done uh because you just can't know none of us will live long enough to know what the great work of the moment finally is none of us and what you know if you feel that as a pressure to get ahead or make your mark or something then you're always going to feel like a loser <laughs> but if you feel that you know like all of the you know if you aspire or to be a, you know someone who's part of the dialogue it takes many people writing and thinking about poems to produce that handful of work that really lasts. Right. And nobody nobody reads Ezra Pound's friend LaSalle's Abercrombie, but LaSalle's Abercrombie was a very fine poet and a very smart person. And he was an important part of the scene. And in that sense, uh, you know, everybody that's active is an important part of the scene. And and that's crucial. If we if we, you know, walk away from it or imagine we're only important because you know, we end up you know, with our name and lights or something, then, then the whole house of cards will come crashing down. Yeah, I think that it that is really kind of the fundamental conundrum for a writer. And I don't know if it's any different from a different age. I mean, I read mm -hmm. sometimes poets or critics they want to hand over the keys to the to the leviathan known as culture and like oh my mm -hmm. gosh how are we surviving with all this media <laughs> and, and sometimes i don't know i still i might stare at my iphone for a long time but i still kind of feel human too and it really i don't know how much it alters the way my heart encounters the world um but I want to uh, go ahead and move on. I, I loved your thoughts on that, and I think it's—I think just to reiterate, because I think it's an important point to reiterate, is that the idea that we are most likely going to be forgotten should should liberate the artist and not constrain yeah. him or her. So that's really yeah. really an amazing point. And and you always have a nod towards history in your in your work, but you do say the job of the job of the individual now is in fact to locate those poems that have accomplished something and that do achieve something. And, and hey, maybe they'll be forgotten, maybe they won't, but we can kind of live in their achievement now, and that, that can at least anchor us in the shifting moments of taste and manner. Um, yeah, that's all we've got. Exactly. That's all we've got. And so I, I really uh, I jumped into your book. Is there any uh, particular reason the various light, your, uh, your essay on Yates, is there any particular reason – uh, or you know, you ordered the books so nicely, and, and in the preface you do say they're you one could really that they're meant to be read in sequence and yes. kind of order. Well, if if one is uh, has the temperament of agitation, or <laughs> they can bounce around as well. But uh, is there a reason, any particular reason, you started off uh, the various light uh, your essay on Yeats as as the first uh, essay the reader would encounter? Yeah, well, it's you know it starts out being about Yeats, but then it's also about Marvell and Oppen and a, mm -hmm. a few other people in there. But I suppose the overriding concern of that chapter is uh, restraint. Yes, and the dialogue between restraint and excess 
seems to me perhaps the most prominent of many such dialogues that the book is trying to engage with, you know, mm-hmm. boldness and shyness or uh, uh, compression and dilation and so on. And the fundamental uh, conundrum that the book is trying to confront is that you know, none of these virtues are absolutely guaranteed to be virtues. That right. the very thing that makes one poem great might be the thing that totally sinks another poem. That we can't we can't have rules. We can't have a set of dependable uh, paradigms on which to uh, build the poems that we're going to make. So this first chapter seemed to me to set that set out that conundrum well and to introduce one of the most important virtues that the book is going to entertain. And this chapter is also front-loaded with some of the concerns that were become most prominent in the book, uh, such as, you know, the basic, though complicated issues about prosody and rhythm and also the relationship of different levels of diction that the English language by its nature brings to us. Yeah, you talked a lot. I liked your discussion. It really kind of illuminated things for me of the roots of words and mm-hmm. and how they how those particular roots and varied roots interacted with each other and also uh, uh, your attention to the metrical agility of a lot of these poets. Um, I just want to say too, just reading it, I felt that uh, it was just like. You create an intimacy in this book, but it feels just kind of joyous the way you take apart a poem, that it's a, it's definitely a labor of love and it comes across as that. But if you could talk about kind of the importance maybe of what you notice in, in using, whether it was Germanic or otherwise, words and the way those monosyllabic words maybe bounced against uh, other words and, and how that kind of generated moments of restraint or not. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's a great thing about English. In the sentence you just uttered, how those monosyllabic words bounce. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds great because you've got this little Germanic monosyllable bounce <laughs> and this fabulously complicated Latinate word, monosyllabic. Right. And, and you've put them in close proximity. That's the sound of the English language. Yeah. English is always doing that. And most languages can't do that. Uh, French and Italian can't do it because they're derived almost exclusively from Latin, and German can't do it because it's derived almost exclusively from Germanic roots. But English is, by nature, this mongrel tongue. You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, life and happiness are German. Pursuit is French. Uh, liberty is Latin. You know, it's it's just all over the place. Uh, in terms of the roots of the words, and and so that's the sound of English. It's why, it's why English. It's one of the reasons that translation uh, is difficult and beautiful, right? <laughs> uh, because of the mongrel nature of English. So once you start listening for that, it's just a candy store. It's it, so much fun. It really is. That's exactly I think what you got across in this chapter is when you start really pulling away the the stressed and unstressed syllables and just showing their interplay with the content and meaning of the poem mm-hmm. and and like you said how those kind of uh single syllable words bounce against kind of the more uh lively uh 
syllabic words. Mm-hmm. At one point, this word kept appearing, though, I wanted to ask you about, and it really I, it spoke to me greatly. Um, and that was the word uh, wither and withering. And I want to read you something you wrote on page four. Um, you asked the question, what happens to the poet who is destined to wither and to restraint? The poet whose deepest inclination is to associate risk with submission. Mm-hmm. That, I've really, that line, that sentence really spoke to me. Be, and w- what I kept reoccurring in your book is that you kept reminding me of just that I'm a human and I'm living and I have feelings and and that my life has, my experiences matter. And one of those is this idea that one has to wither or one, just the general sense, at least in my own personal life, is I've I've discovered the the essential importance of humility in my life. And seeing you kind of discuss it in the in the book as it as it applies to how a poet goes about their craft was really refreshing to me. But let's look at that word withering because at, at a couple of points in the book I was like, why isn't he using the word flourishing? You know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you want to hear there, and I you know, and I think that. You know, the word does, by provocation, invoke its opposite. But as you're suggesting, you know, what I'm, uh, to put this more boldly than I put it in in the book, you know, what I'm asking us to think about is is to interrogate our usual association of artistic achievement or even any kind of achievement with, with, with boldness or even arrogance, putting it out there. Uh, and that, that, that's not, the only thing that works, or not even often the the only thing that works. And you know, I pick up the word wither from that great line of Yeats's that I quote earlier on page three. Now I may wither into the truth, and he uses that word in a way that's shocking in the poem because you expect there flourish or, or a blossoming. Exactly. Um, but he's suggesting no. There's something a little less self-congratulatory than that. There's something a little more pained and a little more compromised. Uh, that it's not something that you get to, you know, uh, you know, pat yourself in the back for, or end up on the cover of People magazine for. <laughs> no, I think that's exactly right. That sometimes I, I, yeah, I'll get the overwhelming sense that. If there's anything about our particular <laughs> historical moment, uh, modesty doesn't seem to be much a part of it. But um, and so that's why I really that the idea of restraint and that and I almost put this on my office wall the the idea that submission uh, is a risk, and I think that is a perfect way to put it. That to to because it's an acknowledgement that you don't control everything and that it goes back to your notion of, well, maybe we need to look back at those who have come before us and submit to what they can teach us instead of being so obsessed with the frontier that, yeah. that we can humbly submit uh, to, to those masters of the past. While, while that acknowledges a, a tremendous amount of, Humility, and I would maybe argue that one can be more content doing so, but that might be my own personal preference. Um, yeah, I, I, though I understand why you might say that. You know, I think I would say that the 
if we are at the frontier, if we are creating the work of tomorrow, it is because we have made that right. engagement that is an act of submission to what exists already, which by its nature is going to be greater than we are. Right. And to, for the greatness of the future to exist in art, it it can't come from anywhere else. I mean, that's why I end that chapter with that kind of provocative sentence, which is this. Um, the greatest poems we will write already exist, and the work of a lifetime is to recognize them as our own. Right. I thought that was a fascinating point. Yeah. Could you speak to that a little, a little more? Yeah. Um, I, I guess I, I mean that in the sense that, you know, what we're working with is a medium right. when we're writing poetry, like any other artist, you know, from finger paints to, you know, the most complicated visual expression or the notes of the diatonic scale and so on. And our medium is the English language, which has a particular nature that it encourages us to do some things and not other things with it. And then also part of that medium are all the great poems that we've read that have, in, you know, instructed us both consciously and unconsciously in what language can do, and we bring all of that uh, to the next act of making, uh, and the the medium uh, in itself it hasn't changed, uh, but we are making it into fresh shapes because of the shapes that it has taken in the past, not in spite of them. Exactly, not in spite of them. I think that's exactly right. Um, I want to move on. I'm looking at the clock. We're, well, I don't, and this can go on as long as we need to. Uh, I was going to focus on, you know what, I will rest on it for a moment, the chapter Infinitude. If, and it seemed to me that what the focus was this uh, overlapping of excess and restraint. Uh, mm -hmm that they calibrated and recalibrated, especially in Whitman and Glick, that at some point you say Whitman just goes flat at some point. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Then, and then and next thing you know is rising again uh, rhetorically and in diction. But yeah. that ultimately that chapter was really focused on uh, not only those poems, but what the poets were wrestling with. And it was that particular intercourse between the poet and I think you call it maybe a mystery, or I think you call it the dumb object. You know that mm -hmm. that the that the sensitive person is always confronted by um, the materiality of another object, and it seems to, in a sometimes provocative and disturbing way, uh, talk back to the poet in a certain way that makes the poet uncomfortably aware of either the poet's own materiality. Or, or that contradiction that we have these vast interior spaces, and yet I'm going to wind up just like that object one day. Yes. Uh, can you speak to the uh, what you were up to in that chapter, Infinitude? Yeah. Well, I, I think you just uh, uh, once again described it really eloquently. Uh, uh, the sentence you just uttered uh, uh, encapsulates what I was trying to do very nicely. I, I think the only thing I would add to that is that I think often for a poet, indeed for an artist of any kind, the, the, the dead thing, the thing mm -hmm. that threatens to be most 
dumbly there and to exert its blankness in our face is the artistic medium. So for poets, language. Right. You know, it just it just sits there. It's these little black marks on a page. And how does how does that get transformed into this thing that seems to have such extraordinary power and charisma? And so, you know, when Whitman says in what I think is one of the most threatening and beautiful lines in all of poetry, and it's a line as you just suggested, which is almost unbearably flat. Right. No music in this line whatsoever. He says, I perceive I have not really understood anything, not a single object, and that no man ever can. That's really heartbreaking. <laughs> Heart, heartbreakingly flat, like you said. Yeah. And yeah. you write, his most, you, you say his most astonishing gestures are always simple to the point of flatness, you know? Yeah. And yeah, talk about that. I mean, it, and well, where do you go? Where do you go from that? I mean, that's what makes the poem so thrilling because that seems like that line seems like not just the death of poetry, but the death of like consciousness right. or or wherewithal. And then to build out of that a world not in spite of that recognition, but because of it, uh, just seems so astonishing and moving to me. And the poem. And the poem does it with words. You know, this is, you know, poems are about things, of course, but, you know, they, they are made of words and need to, and, and can't be otherwise. You know, if it, if it were just, if the poem just existed for what it said, then, you know, it might as well be an email or something. There's no reason for it to be a poem. Exactly. So, so what one feels, you know, I think in all, you know, poems that we love, but what feels viscerally in this Whitman is uh, this confrontation with the, the, the dumb fact of language and how we are able, in spite of the recognition of its absolute otherness, to, to build these beautiful things out of it. I think that is, yeah, I think you nailed it with that. I didn't even, uh, no, I find that very illuminating. And the fact that you know why after that line why did, you can imagine Whitman just like kind of throwing anything out of his hands that he had there like wiping off his hands and walking away you know but yeah yeah that's the beauty of it because it seems like it's the end of something but actually right. it's the beginning of everything it's I know which is just the foundation it's so incredible to think it's like heroic it's it's mm -hmm. it's just yeah it's just courage crystallized. I think that's really wonderful. Um, yeah, if I can say something else about that, course. you know, I think that that's, this goes back to what we were speaking about a moment ago about our relationship to the poetry of the past. You, know, you might, it might at times make you feel like, you know, everything worthwhile has been done right. or that it's, you know, this dead weight. And I would hate ever to give the impression because this book is so much focused not on the poetry of the present, but on the poetry of the past to be thought of that I'm I'm someone who is merely interested in the tradition or something. That's right. That, that's not the point. The, the future of poetry is the only thing I'm thinking about here. Exactly. But in, yeah. this, in this same way as Whitman confronting what seems like this dead end, call it the past, um, what I'm suggesting is that like Whitman, that's the place where we've, we've got to confront in every possible direct way in order to to move forward into what's going to be the real future yeah i never i think that was good i'm glad you said that yeah the book never 
while yeah we don't see you know major treatments of contemporary poets that the book never feels like oh i'm just clinging clinging on to this thing if only everyone saw the value of it it is no to me it's an absolute acknowledgement of your optimism about the future uh and the now so i think exactly the book never feels that you're being nostalgic at all that it's very much good anyway you bridge that past to say uh the well i guess you complicate historical time in, in a wonderful way. I uh, I want to move on. Uh, unfortunately, I want to linger there forever, but I did want to move on to the the, the chapter on Stevens, the, uh-huh. the correct catastrophe, because I thought sure. I was speaking to another uh, poet recently, and he kind of was suggesting that as an American poet in particular, he, wa- uh, he kind of walks around like with attention in him about how to respond to maybe say the suffering and injustices of the world and whether the the American poet or any I don't know poet living in 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 a moment of privilege or something I don't even know how to describe it has a particular uh how do they respond to something that they sort of while they're in a position of safety but they're human so they respond to suffering like anyone else Mm-hmm. how to respond to that in their poetry. And I thought bringing up Stevens was the perfect example. And again, it shows you that what Stevens was wrestling with, one can easily wrestle with now in the contemporary moment. And uh, so I was wondering uh, that you look into Stevens's relationship uh, between poetry and the public event and I've I heard this often in school. Uh, there was either, either those who uh, were enamored and seduced by Stevens, and there was those who were put off by Stevens. And for the exact reason that you say Stevens dangerously veers close to, and that is the sense that he might appear aloof in the face of great historical events. Yes. But, I, but I think you do uh, – the job you do to kind of reconcile that, that where you speak about where his poems are actually generated from was completely illuminating to me. So I wonder if you could talk about Stephen's stance to history and how he responded to it as a literary figure. Sure. Well, I think, you know, first off, to start more widely before I speak directly about Stevens, sure. I think the best thing to say is that this problem that you're talking about is a really good problem to have. Right. If you feel... At, you know, ill at ease when addressing suffering or public events. That's a really good way to feel. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I, I was struck um, after the death of Adrian Rich, mm-hmm. uh, a great poet. Uh, someone wrote about her in a in a, a piece uh, about her um, that in a sentence was something like this. Um, she and speaking here about riches political poems sure she said the sentence was she was not uh she was not imprisoned or tortured for her views she was merely ignored oh, and i thought i thought well isn't that isn't that good I mean, right. do we want poets to be imprisoned and tortured it seems to me that if society is working well then poets are ignored I think that's and, a, a perfect point to make, definitely. Uh, and now it's it's 
a little bit extreme because, of course, a poet like any human being might have something important to say, not necessarily because they're a poet, uh, and one doesn't want to ignore that. But, but I think there is a kind of knee-jerk sense of authenticity and prestige, yes. especially for Americans, to the poet who has visceral access to the thing and may therefore, with true authenticity, speak of it and to it. And there are very few people like that. And Stevens is a great example of a poet who, you know, once you go past his appearance and really look at his life and read his letters and look at his work, you see that he was deeply engaged with all the cultural and political events of his time. Exactly. He did not register that openly and obviously in the subject matter of his poems. But the thinking in his poems is deeply, deeply shaped by those concerns. And that seems to me that reticence, that, that unwillingness to arrogantly address the thing at hand yes. is to me far healthier than the poet who, you know, arrogantly steps up to the plate. I mean, the, the worst example of this and this is a poet whom I revere, mm -hmm. but the worst example of this is Ezra Pound, right. who was really a far less supple political thinker than Stevens, even though he seems on the surface of it to be far more politicized. I think you really put it nicely. And uh, on page 98, uh, you, I think you really nailed down what Stevens was up to and just like you just talked about you write this is how Stevens poems most often work they elaborate the thought provoked by the poem's occasion rather than recording the occasion itself and it reminds me of something else you wrote uh, in essence you wrote the world provokes poetry from the poet you know and that you're right uh, Stevens uh, didn't necessarily how to, you know, make direct reference to these public events, but that his that his poems still are provoked by, uh, you know, those occasions anyway. And it kind of shows, I guess, I don't uh, a restraint, I guess, or you know, if we were to find that virtue, what virtue would you say Stevens is exercising here? Restraint or and self-doubt. Yeah. Um, uh, one of his last letters, Stevens wrote very movingly to me. Uh, there's there's nothing more horrifying to me than to know absolutely what I think. Wow, that is uh, amazing. And, and that uh, willingness to embrace uh, uncertainty and changeability, not in a you know cavalier way, but in, uh, you know, the, uh, the way that suggests the responsibility of the mind and thinking and feeling to a changing world. Well, definitely. And, I, and you end that chapter uh, with this. You say sometimes even sophisticated readers mistake reference for relevance, assuming mm -hmm. that a poem referring openly to public events is automatically responsible to those events and it kind of reminds me sometimes driving around I'll see uh, I don't know when Darfur for instance was on everyone's radar you know I'd be walking just kind of walking around these suburban neighborhoods and I'd see a save Darfur sign in somebody's front yard and uh, mm -hmm. that always I always took that 
I didn't know how to take it really, but I know I, I was confused by it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I think that's so important that you uh, tackled that with Stevens yeah. um, because I think a lot of do, uh, people will often perceive him as aloof and when in fact yes. there's a generosity to his response in many yes. ways. Exactly. Um, I want to move on to uh, your chapter, The Visible uh, Core, in which you kind of well, not kind of. You you really just dive into Lowell and Bishop's relationship and the relationship they had with their poetry. Um, I did want to ask you because I haven't talked about it yet. Uh, as somebody who is writing about other poets, uh, was it some major critical decision for you to go ahead and include information from their letters, or was that sort of a no-brainer? Like, there's no reason to divorce one's personal life from the art they create? Well, I think that uh, I'm, not, I'm not interested in speaking about their lives as such, right. but I am interested in looking at the linguistic acts a representation that they undertake to describe their lives. Exactly. Um, so certainly, you know, the, the story of their lives and Yeats's life and Oppen's life and a few others come up in the book, and, and I think you know they're all really fascinating stories. But what is most fascinating to me is is the act of these writers either either making sense of their own life and language or making the sense of making sense of someone else's life and language. Right. I wanted to uh, ask you about the relationship real quick about Lowell and Bishop. I haven't had a chance to ever pick somebody's brain about it, but it always felt like whenever I see it represented in prose and people talking about it, it always seems that for Lowell, Bishop was sort of like uh, sort of like a prop in this kind of psychological fantasy he had going on that like when he would seek uh, out a husband for her, or the way he seemed to interact with her, it was that he was, uh, it was a relationship based on, for him it seemed, and you, I, mean, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about it, that it was for him he was taking something from Bishop, where not a, I don't know if it was a give and take, but that she served some sort of uh, purpose in his psychological life beyond like seeing her for who she was. I think that's true, and I think it's true the other way, too. Uh -huh. I think Lowell, I mean, what you just described about Bishop, I mean, about Lowell's uh, oddly proprietary friendship with her is true, and it sometimes seems deeply weird and creepy. Right. And then but at other times, they seem to have had a really second relationship, both in a personal sense and in a literary sense. And I think it's true for her, too. I mean, sometimes she just seems to have really desperately needed to associate herself with Lowell's yes. uh, astonishing fame, which was way bigger than hers. And she seem, can seem kind of manipulative and snobbish. Right. And yet, at the same time, there also seems, again, to be something very deeply real and loving and artistically nourishing about her friendship, about her relationship with him as well. So I suppose that's what fascinated me, how and boy, does this, as one describes it, it seems like the opposite of a revelation because it seems like everyday life. Imagine all relationships are overdetermined and both healthy and, and, and possibly pernicious, too. I guess know? it encapsulates all, all of us. 
<laughs> they basically, yeah, they, we can thank them for basically being the most realistic, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you do a great job bouncing or pushing against uh, each other their styles. And mm-hmm. I thought I'm always fascinated by Lord Weary's castle. It's just, you know, I think one person in the in the chat in the chapter you talk about that described that book as somebody putting smelling salts under your nose. Uh, <laughs> And then he kind of just unplugs the wattage and eventually writes life studies while Bishop is, I think, the way – I think she described that she submitted to the New Yorker uh, a poem of just – I submitted some plain description to them. But I thought he did a great job to honor the act of description that – and as an act of restraint in many ways that the more severe that description became really spoke – to an emotional depth that that the description is in fact a response to tremendous feeling yeah. where and I think it sounds like you were kind of seeing how Lowell looked at Bishop and was trying to tease out those more plain spoken qualities mm-hmm. that she had and I was wondering if you could talk about that yeah well there I mean many things uh, determined and shaped you know, what we think of now is this monumental change in Lowell's career from the early verse of Lord Rees Castle to uh, what became the incredibly influential and charismatic uh, new plain style in life studies. But certainly Bishop's work was one of those things. Uh, Lowell was aware of that, and he, she had something that he coveted. Right. Um, you know, I, I loved the metaphor you used a moment ago that he, you know, turned off the wattage uh, mm-hmm. into life studies. And in a sense, that's absolutely the case. But in another sense, it's it's a different it's a different kind of high voltage because yeah. when you look at the poems of life studies, though they seem so chastened and plain compared to what precedes them, they are still poems of immense apocalyptic expectation. Right. Uh, they are still poems that are hanging on the brink of the precipice. And so while he really admired Bishop's understatement and plainness and her ability to convey emotional situations, not through emotional language, but through description, and while he learned from that, Bishop would never have written the kind of poems that he wrote in life studies because that that high voltage apocalyptic demeanor was not her that was Lowell and that's the, I think the consistency in his career despite what seems like that you know great change in, in style in those books yeah he uh, I think you're right like if the diction might have uh, been turned down a couple notches but uh, there's always something inherently volcanic about Lowell. yes Yes. And, and I always I came up when I was reading this chapter, I came this image came to mind that in fact Elizabeth Bishop is is like the mountain and and Lowell is the volcano inside it. You know, just <laughs> that she that she contains that I don't know, I guess that's the argument. Does she contain that apocalyptic kind of uh uh sensibility and that it is it is so Intense that it represents itself in this plain description style. Uh, I don't well, know how to I, I read her exactly about her intensity. I think she is a very intense poet, but in a different way. I wouldn't call her. 
apocalyptic, except perhaps in the you know the root sense of the word. Right. Apocalyptic is Greek for the Latin revelation. It means right. an, an unveiling, a revealing. And and if she is that, it's in a very subtle way because her poems mostly want to treat the veil, right, and not what you know is emerges when you rip it off. But she is nonetheless a poet of of great visionary fervor. You know, the end of at the fish houses uh, when you know when we stick our hand into that cold water. I mean, there is there is. Uh, really otherworldly and creepy going on there. Definitely. Um, and so it, 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 those sensations aren't delivered to us with, you know, the Malarian orchestra with which it is delivered in, in Lowell, but some version of that immensity is there. Uh, but, uh, you know, as Nietzsche would suggest, she's an artist. Nietzsche said somewhere that, uh, Whenever things are uncovered, the true artist wants to look only at remain at what remains covered. Yeah, that's really. Yeah. And, uh, and Bishop is that kind of artist. That yeah, that's the end. And strangeness and mystery of the cover. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's really fascinating. Uh, and at the end of that chapter, near the end of the chapter uh, on one ten, you write, "At their most alluring, Bishop's poems lean dangerously." toward the formal qual former quality while Lowell leans towards the latter. And for both poets, what is truly at stake is not the act of revelation as such, but the style in which that act mm. is dramatized mm -hmm. and that you find uh, a camaraderie between their their poetic impulses and they just have decided to use entirely two different maps on this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's really yeah. nice. Um, that about is wrapping up our uh, time today, James, and oh. I want to uh, thank you for such a lovely book. Um, before we take off, I wonder what you uh, uh, what you hope uh, you know readers ultimately uh, get out of your book, and what how you kind of and what's your relationship to the book now? Has it is it still fresh in your mind, or have you moved on kind of to other things? Well, I have certainly moved on to other things, or, you know, always writing new things. And, of course, by the time the book is published, you've finished it, you know, really quite a long time ago. But that said, it, the book does not feel like a dead thing to me at all. It is still very much uh, alive to me, I suppose, because I really believe strongly, viscerally, personally, in the you know, central conundrum of the book, the, which is what we began by talking about, the way in which any of these values are not legislatable, but are, are always of value in a site-specific way. And that seems to me, you know, part of the endless beautiful struggle of, of making art, as we also said, that, that all precedent is crucial, but all precedent feels irrelevant in the moment when you are staring at the blank page. I think that is absolutely uh, absolutely well said. Um, I have been talking to James Longenbach, the author of The Virtues of Poetry, Grey Wolf Press, 2003. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. I can't wait to talk again. It's been a pleasure for me, too. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs>